Mike, how are we doing today? Fair to Midland, Chris. Okay, we'll see if we can improve that with some clean air. Clean air. Today, we're going to talk about, even though it's the last on the list for our design podcast for test cells, it's one of the most important, which is environmental health and safety. Environmental health and safety, which means that the design considerations are wrapped right around this topic when putting a test cell or designing a test cell. Yeah, covering all aspects of it that are away from the the technicality of the engine or the dyno and more to do with the the surroundings and you know what we're creating and what we're leaking sometimes, that sort of thing. Yeah, I would put it as it's you know what potentially can go into the ground, yeah. what potentially goes in the air, or what will go into the air, and we can cover it both ways. We can cover the air, we can cover the ground, and what ties in with that when considerations in your design for your test facility. Let's start with the the air side of things. So the the air coming into the in the test cell for for both for the engine combustion and also the air moving around for um, ventilating the cell. Mm-hmm. One of the key things is is understanding. I think we spoke about this spoke about this in an earlier podcast, but just in case we didn't, so we can cover bases, is that you need to consider all the local regulations. You need to consider all the governmental regulations tied in with what you're doing. And one of them, from the United States perspective, that you're going to have to address is the exhaust the gases leaving the test cell. Right. Both the, the noise level produced by the, the engine exhaust and the, uh, the actual gaseous content. Correct. So when you look, let's state, talk, for example, for the gaseous perspective, it produces, engines produce emissions, and there are certain emissions constituents that have to be held to certain levels. The government or the local authorities, state authorities, government authorities, in our case in the state of Michigan, would be the DEQ or Department of Environmental Quality. And that exists in, in a lot of states. And basically, they regulate and they monitor emissions that you're producing, one of the things they do. And what you have to do is you have to apply for a permit to build. And that includes reporting the types of fuels you'll use and how much fuel you'll use, basically. I mean, it goes, it's a lot more complicated than that, but it's one of the steps you have to go through. Does that take account of any catalytical converters you've got in the exhaust or any after-treatment you're using in the, in the testile exhaust system to clean things up? So typically, and again, there's, there's so many nuances to this. Typically, it's got to be the fixed, constant, all-the-time scenario. So it's part of the facility. Even though you may be testing catalytic converters, your example, it's not considered part of the submission to the DEQ as far as how you're controlling exhaust emissions. Right, but some ex- some tessile exhausts contain their own catalysts as a way of cleaning up the exhaust. They they have some controls and restrictions in there. So mm-hmm. that will be considered part of it? Or is that independent? It's all based on the air consumption and the fuel consumption and the, chemi- the chemical reactions it is based upon the fuel being consumed, the emissions being produced, because, and that's where it gets into, you know, how much fuel you're burning. Because there are thresholds, and they call it thresholds, that if you go above a certain level, then you have to put emission controls on it. There's different levels of emission controls based upon how high you get in emissions pollutant, all the way to considering to be a major polluter, 
which some of the power generation companies are considered, where you have round-the-clock monitoring. Okay, so as somebody setting up their own test cell, is this something they can monitor themselves, or do they just have to apply it for a certain regulation, a certain permit based on what they're testing? So not to go too deep, because I know we have a lot of other subjects to talk about, but when you apply for a permit, you're obligated to report, meaning okay. that you keep track of how much fuel you're burning and you keep track of there's certain things you have to report out on a, on a certain interval. Okay. An area to consider with the experts on the, the permitting side. The thresholds, I don't know the current thresholds right now, but you want to stay as low as possible because it, certain thresholds, it gets to be quite expensive to imagine. control. Yeah. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about the fuel side of it from a leading to the exhaust emissions. What about fuel in the test cell itself and what we need to do to be aware of, be careful of fuel spills and the uh, other chemical spill? Yeah. And again, this is a crossover to health and safety at the same time. So we may mention again when we go over there, but fuel spills are related to you spill fuel on the floor. You need to make sure there's containment. You need to make sure that you're monitoring that as well. So there's an aspect of the liquid and there's an aspect of the gas or vapor that it produces. Yeah, and if we're thinking about the environmental side at the moment, I guess it's that vapor that we're concerned with. Yeah, part of it is the vapor. So if you have fuel inside a test cell and you have a leak inside a test cell, you produce, we'll use gasoline, for example, or petrol, it'll produce hydrocarbons. And that is a gaseous substance that's flammable or ignitable. So you don't want that in a test cell and you want to be able to monitor it. The other part of it is if you spill fuel, the last thing you want to do is spill it in an environment where it actually, you don't want to spill it, but if you do, you want to make sure it's contained. So in a test cell, usually you have means in your design plans and your, your design show ways of containing it if there is that type of event. And the same thing outdoors. The last thing you want is fuel to be spilled into the ground because then it becomes very difficult to mitigate. And we, we talk about spills, and that might just be a, a slow leak from a fuel tank or a, a fuel line somewhere that you might have trouble seeing, but we need systems to detect that. Exactly. And that's in our fuel podcast. That's where we talked about double wall containment. So if there is a leak in the primary line, you've got that back up in the secondary line around it to catch it. Right. Okay. Well, that's an interesting introduction. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So move on past that to the, the noise side of things. We talked a little bit about the permitting of that as well. But there's also noise inside the test cell, which would affect operators to some extent, the mechanical noise within the cell. Yeah. Typically, you'll have a control room attached to it. You want to make sure that the noise stays inside the cell and that it doesn't radiate anywhere outside the test cell, such as into the control room. So you want to make sure that the design includes sound abatement within the test cell or the control room to keep the noise down. Right. Again, that, that would be wall thickness and, and special doors. That's about the limit on that one? Wall thickness, special doors. I've seen it done a lot of different ways. In fact, some of the earlier cells that I built, I, I used 12-inch wide block and then sand filled the cores of the blocks to give additional sound deadening. That would be a good way of absorbing anything, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. Earlier on, you'd mentioned, I think, the risk assessment side of things. So how do we build that into, into the discussion? Is this something we can, as a test cell builder, you can assess yourself? Do you need special help to do that? Well, what I would always recommend is 
if it's new to you, you definitely want to seek out some professional experienced people to help with that exercise because they have the experience of working in test cells, building test cells, or designing test cells. Because what you're trying to do is capture all the risks associated with what you're about to build or design. So whether it be, you know, what's the risk of failure of any of the subsystems, that's what you want to capture saying what could happen and how bad would it be if it did happen and how often could it happen. It's all part of what failure motor effects analysis that you go through in FMEA. So being able to analyze that in sufficient depth, you've got to make sure that you recognize what you don't know as well as taking, don't, don't assume you know too much in other words. Right. And typically it's not done by a singular person. You want multiple inputs in determining risk. Yeah, yeah I can see the value of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you want to move on to the health and safety side of this equation? Yeah, because that's quite large in size too as far as the things to consider. Yeah. I know when we were talking about this beforehand, we mentioned ergonomics quite early on in that discussion in terms of how the test cells configured, how the control rooms arranged. An important factor to make sure people can operate comfortably. Well, yeah, and in fact, the movement of things. Yeah. So as you're moving engines in and out of the test cell, you've got to make sure the ergonomics are correct for the individuals using it. The cell has to be designed properly for how things come in in the cell and so how things go back out. Lifting mechanisms, all that needs to be considered as you're putting your cell together. Interesting. As we look at more modern test cells, that, that seems to be assisted by having more space. In, in some of the older test cells, they were built relatively small, and that, that shows up that, the problems in that area. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point that you bring up, because I just reflect back to some of our earlier podcasts in, in designing the test cells, the brick and mortar. And typically, you want to keep the cell as small as possible so you can control the environment, the air temperature and things. The bigger the test cell, the more difficult it, it is to control certain aspects of the environment. Yet the, the ergonomics and the access and the movement gets to be a, a more straightforward. Yeah, so it's, it's trade-offs. So it's interesting contradiction, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's trade-offs. Yeah, so I think the safety side, the safety can can work better with some, some improvement in space, but the standards don't change with the size of the room, do they? We've still got to meet the same criteria. Pretty much. Right, and one of those criteria would be fire protection. Mm-hmm. I guess in that area, we've got to reference the fuel we're working with and the, the overall the, well, the type of engine that's running as well. Right, and this is where you need to know what, who controls from a state city standpoint the regulations in regards to fire protection because it varies from state to state from locations with even within the state so you want to be working with your local fire department and making sure that your designs meet their criteria most of the facilities i've worked in the fire department's always been involved with the approval of the selected fire suppression system And it ranges anywhere from a water sprinkler system to a high-hazard water sprinkler system to CO2. It all depends. And there are options available out there. The guide's going to be is what the the local authorities or municipalities will allow or require. And I guess a changing one as well, because certainly in some of my not-so-long-back was testing systems where the fire protection was provided by Halon. And which is now outlawed. Which is now outlawed. So it's yeah. it's interesting how things how things were safe and then are now considered dangerous. Yeah, and technology has changed too. Obviously, what you want to consider is you probably have some pretty expensive equipment inside the test cell. 
and you're hesitant to put in water because as soon as you start spraying water over everything, you're probably damaging equipment. And it's the trade-off again. Do you want to put the equipment inside the test cell because of, or do you want to keep it outside the test cell? But if there's a fire, you're more, you should be more concerned about putting that fire out and reducing that risk to nothing as quickly as possible, even if it means damaging equipment. Yeah, that's got to be the first priority for the safety. Right. Yeah. And I guess the vapor and gas protection falls into that one. We talked about it a little bit earlier with the environment, but this is where it can have a very sudden effect. If we get a gaseous flammable vapor inside the test cell, that can be very dangerous. Correct. And in the design considerations, there are regulations that state in that you need to make sure that, and again, it should show in the risk assessment when it comes to this, but You want to make sure that you have the proper detection in the proper area and the proper sensors that are looking for specific constituents. But you also want to consider if if you are working in a potentially flammable gaseous area, you want to make sure that any spark ignition devices are reduced to nothing or don't have a chance of impacting it. And the reason, and then give you an example that installing of electrical, the height of electrical inside a test cell, there's a minimum height that it has to be above the floor. Well, the outlets on the wall? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Just a simple thing like that, but it's something that sometimes gets overlooked if you don't have that knowledge and experience and background behind it. uh, You want to eliminate those ignition sources because if you use the example of hydrocarbons, that's a heavier gas, it drops. So you don't want to have anything that's going to ignite that gas. You want to be able to detect it, and you want to have the controls in place to get rid of it if it detects it. You want to evacuate it and dilute that gas mixture. Again, a reflection on the the advantage of keeping a good ventilation system through the test cell as well, irrespective of the test taking place, just making sure air is moving through the test cell. Right. Okay. What about the lighting side, sort of visibility into the test cell? We need to have some light to show... Although the engine can operate without light, it's important to be able to see what's being tested. Right. And you may think, well, why is lighting part of safety? It boils down to you want to make sure that if you're in that environment, it's well lit, that there are no areas where you could, you know, it's so it's darker where you may trip over something. You want to make sure it's well lit. And going through this process, if you use standard calculations for lighting in a room, it's usually underlit. And I think we talked about this before when we talked about the HVAC systems and control rooms. You know, using standard calculations don't work because there's more heat load in those those areas, so you have to calculate exactly what you need. Lighting's no different. I, yeah. You're usually providing more lighting than you would think inside the test cell. Yeah, inevitably, it's a very um, lot of equipment in the test cell, a lot of pieces that are not necessarily the same place as last time you went in. Things have moved around, and a different engine may require a different layout, so we've got to be be able to see readily where where we're going. Yeah. Earlier on, I I definitely added a lot of lighting to the point where people would comment (laughs) extremely bright in the test cell, but that's just me. I wanted it as bright as possible without being a hindrance or making it difficult to see, but... And mostly we have a viewing window into a test cell. I mean, historically, that's always been the case. As we move forward, I'm thinking that's not so important for the engine, for the test itself, because they're quite often camera monitored. But do you think a window is going to continue to be a part of a test cell layout? I do. You're right. There are test cells that do not have windows. Most of them do, though. And there's uh, obvious reasons why. 
you don't have to rely on the electronics that a camera is pointing in the right position. As long as the window's there, you can you can look in different areas of the test cell through the window. You just need to make sure it's the right window I can say, yes. in the right spot. I've had experience of a test cell where a flywheel let go and departed the engine, and that can make a big mess around the test cell, and being close to a window wouldn't be a good thing in that case. But that would be, again, they have, you said the specification, it would have to be an extremely robust window, toughened and secure. Some of the earlier windows that test cells that I've worked in, you know, they may have five panes of quarter-inch glass, bulletproof glass, sandwiched together to form a pretty thick window. It's not going to come through there, yeah. But the other key point is to keep in mind is I've seen installations too that they still put windows in the wrong area. And when I say the wrong area is you want to consider if you're running an engine or drivetrain or something in the test cell, you want to consider which way things are rotating. So if something were to break, the rotating direction or the flow of shrapnel, basically, where it would go. Yeah. And you want to stay out of that path. So you bring up the flywheel. The last thing you want to be doing is sitting next to, looking through the window right at the flywheel as it's coming loose, because it's coming right at the area your window is at. You want to you want to change the orientation of the window, make sure you're out of that path. You're looking through that window that is not in the path of something coming apart. Yeah, so keeping in mind what might happen, just think of the worst cases, what could happen, be aware of that. I know we, we have guards in place for the drive shafts because they, they can also come apart sometimes, but they contain less energy than, for example, a flywheel. So Correct. guarding is an important part of protecting the, the test cell. We should think of it not just mechanically, but I put guarding into even heat shielding protecting from heat, protecting from anybody getting their fingers into something. Most of the time when we talk about guarding, we do talk about like a drive shaft guard, something that goes over a rotating element. But we also need to consider it gets warm. If you're running an engine, it's going to have hot exhaust. And you want to make sure that you keep your personal protection in mind when you're putting the guarding plan together, how you're going to protect people when they're inside the test cell working. Because you may be running for a period of time, you shut the cell down to take checks, maybe check the oil or whatever, and you want to make sure that you've got the right guarding, heat shielding in place to prevent the person from getting hurt. Yeah, it's interesting because seeing a, a test cell running at full load, especially a turbo engine glowing away, is, is very obvious. But once you stop that, it does look cooler a lot quicker than it gets cooler. Yeah, and, and, and the funny story is I remember some of the earlier test cells I worked in and they had professional photography done, and they'd always have us run the engine and get manifolds glowing red, turn off the lights in the test cell so they get a nice picture of the glowing red exhaust manifolds. But very, yeah, you're absolutely right. Very dramatic, but yeah, yeah not, not a good thing to be close to. Yeah, I mean, you'll see it. If you look at enough literature related to engine testing or test cells, you're bound to find a picture like that. Right. So going on from there, one of the more complicated uh, stories is that's around emergency stop or e-stop, how to accommodate that within a complex test cell, how to provide a method of bringing things to a stop in a way that's safe for the equipment and the occupants. Yeah, extremely intriguing topic, the e-stop. You have a shutdown strategy when you put a test cell together, and it ranges from A to Z. An e-stop could be part of that shutdown strategy, and typically in a test cell there will be an e-stop. An e-stop is a human interface to shut the cell down. Yeah. And that's exactly what it's designed to do to protect the individual from harm 
or catastrophic failures. So there's typically a lot of automatic systems within the test cell that are monitoring for, for leaks, for, for fire, for everything else we've talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And they will be linked into the, into the emergency system to stop things. But this is an additional above and beyond control that, that the operator can bring into play if you see something that is not correct. Correct. It's layers of protection is what we're talking about. So you've got your, like you said, you've got your sensors that are monitoring certain things like oil pressure, exhaust temperature. You set limits on those and you give it commands from a software perspective to do certain actions. So you may get a warning that says the exhaust at this temperature, but then if it goes higher than that, you instruct it to to start shutting the test cell down. An e-stop is considered a fail-safe system. It's built with redundancies in mind. So it's built and designed to work 100% of the time when you depress that button. When you actuate that button, it will do exactly what it's designed to do, regardless of what's happening around it. It's designed to take things out of the picture so you protect yourself. So you may set it up to shut the test cell down immediately, pull the power. Or another stage is you may ramp it down very quickly and then pull the power, shut the power off. Depending on what you're testing, what's running at the time. Exactly. I call that the ultimate tool for the operators to say to himself or herself, if something goes wrong or I see something starting to go wrong, I don't hesitate. I hit the e-stop button and I know things will happen to reduce the risk as soon as I hit that e-stop button. Right, right. So it's not an e-stop as in driving a car, an emergency stop being bang on the brakes and bring the car to a halt because we can't necessarily stop everything instantly. But it's just to take the inputs out so that things start to slow down and get up more under control. Right. And I've been in environments where the e-stop button strategy was set up to basically bring things down as quickly as physically possible. For example, you have an engine with a drive shaft connected to the dynamometer. It's running at 5,000 RPM. You see the drive shaft starting to shake or you feel that something's coming apart. You hit the e-stop button. Basically, what the dynamometer is going to do in this situation is was programmed to do is immediately clamp as quickly as possible to bring it down to zero RPM as quickly as possible. Because what can happen in a situation is the drive shaft may break. So it has no control over the engine. It only has control over the dynamometer. You only have control over the dynamometer to a certain point to break things, to slow things down. You cut the fuel to the engine. You bring the dynamometer down as quickly as possible. So there's different ways of doing it, but the ultimate objective is to make it a safe environment as quickly as possible. Reduce the risk. Right. So as we've been talking about throughout this section, it's all about making it a safe environment, both statically and safe dynamically. Correct. And keep in mind... When you're testing, you're doing either development testing, performance testing, durability testing. And if you're doing durability testing, it's to prove out that it's durable. So in essence, what you're trying to do basically is break the engine to find out where its threshold's at. So you'll set it up to run so many hours, but you want to see, did the design criteria you put in place and build for this particular engine, did it last as long as we said it was going to last? If it failed, where did it fail? Doing development work, it's a development. So... You expect it to do certain things, but it doesn't always work out that way. So it's then being able to stop, if something changes on the test, being able to stop it safely so that you can still, you still have some of the evidence to look at and make some conclusions from the running. Right. And then when the operator's operating the test cell, they can see something happen. They have two choices to make. They can start to shut it down manually, or they can hit the e-stop button. 
they have those choices to make, but it's it's those choices they need to be able to make. So they may feel that they understand what's happening and it's okay to bring it down slowly, let things cool down. Or in their experience and understanding what they're doing, they elect to say, nope, this is a problem, and they hit the e-stop button. And that's the, the emphasis on safety. Yeah. Right. I've, right. Got it. I've got it. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for that introduction, Mike. A very interesting line uh, list to go through. Yeah, it's a it, it's a serious topic. It, it's life and limit in some circumstances, and you want to make sure you protect for that. Be able to go home at the end of the day safe and sound. Right. That's obviously the most important thing. Yep. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights, presented by Fruid. If there are any engine testing topics you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at fruitdino.com.